Welcome back to Divorce to Done. I'm Rob Woodward, joined by Darren Schmidt. We're divorce lawyers focused on giving you the information necessary to navigate your divorce quickly and efficiently without bankrupting yourself emotionally or financially. Darren Schmidt on this beautiful Friday morning. How are you doing? So, so, so good. We are heading into Thanksgiving, of course, this weekend in Canada for all our Canadian listeners. So that's an exciting time. And I got thinking about songs to think about in terms of giving thanks, like great songs where the singer is praising someone, giving gratitude. And the reason I'm thinking about the song that's in my head is because, in part, uh, my wife and I and some friends, we went down to Kelowna uh, last weekend, and we went to this place called Skinny Dukes, and it's a retro restaurant. It's like you step into the 1970s, but it's not from the 70s, like it's a new restaurant. It's sort of hipster in a way like that, Um, but it's really well done. And so we ended up sitting at this booth and... Above our booth is a bunch of pictures of stuff, just clutter stuff, stuff from the 70s pictures. There's a giant picture of the four Golden Girls staring down at us as we fantastic. eat. Fantastic. That's so Yeah, cool. it was. It was really fantastic. And then I got thinking about songs about giving thanks. And of course, you're thinking about the theme song to that. Thank you for being a friend. Thank you, Rob, for being a friend. Thank you to our listeners for being a friend. Thank You for Being a Friend is a song written by Andrew Gold. Uh, Probably no one has ever really heard the original song. This has been covered on the theme song for the Golden Girls by someone named Cynthia Fee, apparently. But the song itself, originally written and performed by Andrew Gold, apparently arose to uh, only number 25 on the Billboard Hot 100 chart. So not too many friends for Andrew Gold trying to raise that song on the billboard hot 100 chart but anyway good song thank you for being a friend thanks for listening thank you and andrew gold thinking of that is that why the show was called golden girls because of course that's (laughs) the most memorable part of that show the song i I know rob you're like a huge fan of the show i Uh, enjoy the program it is the, (laughs) the writing is crisp uh it is snappy uh, anyone who has Amazon Prime has access to all of the episodes from, I believe, it's eight or nine seasons. Uh, really? So, yeah. And if you're really interested, uh, not to go off on this weird tangent, on YouTube, if you have watched all of Golden Girls, you can then watch Golden Palace, the successor series that ran for what? one season on CBS. Golden Palace. So Dorothy uh, moves out of the house and gets married to Liam Neeson. So she's not there anymore. So Blanche can Neeson? Uh, yes, Liam Neeson, uh, Naked Gun 33 and a third. Yeah, that oh, guy, okay. Liam Neeson. Okay. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Okay, uh, I'm sorry. Yeah, Liam Neeson. I, I know you were thinking, and I was thinking of the Taken guy. Never mind. Yeah, I was like, holy crap. You're, that, you're like, are you talking show. about that guy? No, no, it was Liam Neeson. <laughs> so, Sophia and Rose with Blanche, Blanche convinces them to sell the house. Uh, and the last, the opening scene, it's quite excellent. So the last season of, scene of Golden Girls is the three of them crying because Dorothy has left to go live her life with Liam Neeson. The opening scene of Golden Palace is movers moving things out of their couch. And of course, the three ladies are sitting on their iconic wicker pink couch in their living room in Miami. And these movers come and pick them up on the couch and carry them out of the house. And they go, goodbye, house. And then you see the movers move them and the couch and all the knickknacks into a hotel in Miami that is run by Don Cheadle, 
kid you not, run by Don Cheadle. He's the <laughs> guy running the hotel. And in the kitchen, um, I'm I'm forgetting the actor's name, the chef is uh, Cheech of Cheech and Chong. And he's the chef in the kitchen and he works with Sophia to cook for everyone in the hotel. I totally didn't plan to go off on that tangent. You got me going there. Of course, our listeners, thank you for being a friend. It is Thanksgiving. All of those things are totally binge-worthy watches. And of course, further Thanksgiving, although we're uh, releasing this on Friday, uh, the end of the week in October, um, because Monday is a holiday, Darren and I won't be recording for Tuesday. So we should be with you again next Friday. But with that, Darren, let's turn to the substance of today's episode is you and I have talked about this on TikTok. You and I have been children's counsel when someone would want children's counsel. That is a lawyer for your children appointed in your family matter. One of the many ways that voices of your children can be canvassed and heard before the court. Yeah, um, it's something that's become more prevalent. Uh, as uh, time moves along, there, there's it's it's more common for children to have a lawyer as part of their parents' divorce or separation process. You and I have both acted as children's lawyers, so we'll talk a little bit about what the role of a children's lawyer is, how they get appointed, and all that stuff today. Um, but it, it should be said. I mean, this is a somewhat recent. Uh, this is a somewhat recent thing in our courts. We we haven't had this forever. Um, so it's basically been s- since kind of the 90s to now that children have had the possibility of having a lawyer in their family law case. And um, I, you know, in, in thinking about today's episode, I've looked at some materials. I'm looking at an article from uh, Nicholas Bala. Nicholas Bala is, I think, one of the... Um, more well-known thinkers of the role of children's counsel and voices of children in Canadian courts. Uh, I believe he's a professor somewhere. Anyway, the, the article I'm looking at is called Rethinking the Role of Lawyers for Children, Child Representation in Canadian Family Relationship Cases. And at the outset of the article, he um, provides a quote from Chief Justice of the Supreme Court, Beverly McLaughlin, former Chief Justice, Way, way back in 1992, when she was a judge here in my home province, British Columbia, she said, in order to find out what is in the best interests of the children, it seems logical to find out what the children think. How can you assess a child's best interest without even hearing from the child? End quote. So a very straightforward quote from her. And uh, indeed, we do find it useful to find out what the kids are thinking as their parents are going through a divorce, what their views and preferences are, and all that sort of stuff. So there's really two ways when, well, first of all, to begin, children's counsel can be appointed. Much like anything that comes through a court, uh, there needs to be an application made and a judge needs to grant it. Of course, if you and your ex agree to having children's counsel and adding a third lawyer to the mix to say this lawyer is going to speak to our children, then you may be able to move that through by consent between you and your ex. Of course, if there isn't agreement, from one party or the other, uh, then an application will have to be made. Just like any other application to court, it's a chamber's application. Usually, and a chamber's application, of course, is something we do on the path to trial. So someone bringing an application to court saying, hello, I'd like children's counsel for my children, first has to consider the test for children's counsel. And it's interesting. 
because the law in this area is not the same across the country. And Darren and I have talked about this previously. We've talked about it between ourselves many times. In certain provinces, uh, like BC, the test for getting children's counsel appointed is quite high. And the test under BC family legislation, and I believe it's at section 203, if anyone's interested and wants to read this, but I am paraphrasing. The test basically says the parents um, must be unable to ascertain the best interests of their children in parenting their children. That is, the fight between the two of them or the conflict between the two of them must be so bad that there's really no other way to ascertain the best interests of the children. The court then looks at the second prong to say, is it in the best interest of the children in this instance to have children's counsel? And then from there, may appoint children's counsel. And often, looking at those decisions in BC, even though people are in conflict, even though they're in litigation, they're not necessarily bad parents independently or ignoring the best interests of their children. They just want their children's perspectives heard. So in that situation, it may not be the best for children's counsel. Whereas in other provinces, like Alberta, where I practice, uh, children's counsel can be ordered when it's deemed generally by the judge to be in the best interest of children to do so. And although this is not affirmed in case law, I think Darren would agree with me and any practitioners I've talked to in Calgary or Edmonton or bigger cities where there's more lawyers, generally when parties have been in some conflict and they say, hey, we want to hear from the children, usually courts have been doing that and granting children's counsel and allowing those applications to go through. And then once that happens and a lawyer is appointed for your children, that lawyer can be appointed broadly on two grounds. One is an amicus, which means friends of the court, which generally means observe and report is what I like to call it, where that lawyer will then talk to your children and broadly report back to the court, maybe write a report and say, this is what I'm hearing. The other role for children's counsel could be more of an advocacy role where they look at the children, talk to the children and may say contextually, this is what I'm hearing as lawyer. Maybe this is what I'm suggesting what should occur in this situation. But usually when we see children's counsel, it's normally more in an amicus role. Do you have any thoughts on children's counsel applications here? No, uh, in BC, the threshold's really high. I almost never see it in my practice here, but previously practicing in Alberta, uh, it was quite common to see children's counsel appointed, particularly where parent A is saying, the child is saying this to me, and parent B is saying, no, the child is saying that to me. And if both par parents have a lawyer, it's common for those lawyers to agree in those sort of jurisdictions like Alberta to say, why don't we just get a lawyer for the kids so that we actually know what their voice is? And it's common in Alberta to have an appointment as, in terms of a child's lawyer for the lawyer to be an amicus, or sorry, an advocate, excuse me. I'd say it's very rare to, to have an appointment of a lawyer just as an amicus. Um, we'd rather have them as a best interest advocate or something like that, whatever it might be called, where they're listening to the children, child, reporting to the other lawyers in the court, but also taking a position on the issue of parenting or parental decision-making itself based on their discussions with their client. They're not necessarily taking strict instructions from their children as clients because, of course, children are minors. Depends on the level of maturity of the, of the child, how old the child is, uh, their stage of development, things like that. But more often than not, if a children's lawyer is going to be appointed, uh, they're going to be appointed to take a position. 
And as part of the order in terms of making uh, an order from the court to have a children's lawyer appointed, the court should articulate on what basis that lawyer is appointed. So they should say, you know, the lawyer is appointed as a best interest advocate or as an amicus, uh, because I was once appointed as a children's lawyer and it wasn't articulated. And then at the next court appearance, I sought clarification from the court and the court said, you're a best interest advocate for your clients. And that made it easy for me to determine what in fact I was doing. So maybe we should talk, uh, Rob, a little bit about our own personal experience being children's counsel. I think in in each instance, we were appointed children's counsel through a legal aid certificate, but uh, that's not the only way they can be appointed. But I mean, you and I have both done it, so uh, why don't you talk about your experience getting swooped in on files as children's counsel? It's interesting uh, because children's counsel often is not involved at first instance. Often there's been some back and forth between mom and dad. Mom and dad have been separated for some time. There's probably already a parenting order in place. Children are keenly aware mom and dad are split up. There's been some back and forth. You're coming in as children's counsel halfway through. And then the most unique part about this, of course, is actually talking to children. Because as family lawyers, even though we think about children a lot and we think about their best interest and parenting and support, we by and large only deal with adults and never see the children, meet the children. Many times we don't even see pictures of children, even though we're asking people about their families pictures, those sorts of things, engagement, it just never happens. So even though they're very much often the most important part of a family file, in many ways, they're the one part that we never really interact with because we interact with the other party. We interact with the other lawyer, children we don't engage with. So you and I coming in to be children's counsel, it's after we've been lawyers for some years and talking to children on the phone is a different experience than speaking with adults. Uh, for me, getting appointed children's counsel was during COVID. So I did not have the opportunity to meet my clients, those children that I represented, in person. So it was either via Zoom or on the phone. Uh, and those conversations are usually pretty short. Uh, you want to get as much of the story from them as you can. And of course, that's obviously depends on age ability of the children, ability of them to engage with you, their desire to engage with you. Because of course, through a file, perhaps sometimes maybe one child will want to talk to you, especially if they're siblings, others might be shy or less willing to do so. But much like when we represent adults, of course, you want to hear their views. Of course, you want to know uh, what best to take forward in the court and give them some information about the court process, what they can expect. And at the same time, you don't want to put the stress of litigation onto them. When we deal with our adult clients, we're always seeking, please make a decision. What do you want to do here? Are we going to make an application, not make an application? If you do this, maybe this will happen. If you do this, maybe that will happen. Whereas when we're speaking with children, of course, the message always has to be, your parents love you. They're both involved in your life. If they didn't love you, we wouldn't be here talking to you, trying to figure out what they want to do so that we can get the best outcome for everybody. Yeah. the, uh, I mean, in terms of anyone listening, they're thinking, well, should I get my children a, a lawyer? Because if they say what they're telling me to the lawyer, the lawyer will tell that to the judge and then that's what will happen. 
And I think that's a misconception about what the role of a children's lawyer is and what the court will do upon receiving information from a children's lawyer. The children's views are but one factor in a broad array of factors that a court must consider when determining what's in a child's best interest pertaining to parenting time or pertaining to decision-making between the two parents about uh, how that child should live his or her life. So so the child's views are but one of, I don't know, eight to 10 factors. I don't have them all memorized, but the the court must look at all of those. 16 factors in the Divorce Act. Section 16 factors. So you can go look those up. Um, So you'll see in there the child's views, uh, considering if the child's mature enough to to relay those views. So typically we we wouldn't get a, a child client, you know, under the age of a about eight. I'd say eight is kind of the the lowest age you'd really be able to have a meaningful relationship with a child in terms of understanding what they're saying, knowing that that child is understanding of what's going on pertaining to the separation between their parents. Um, Can they comprehend what's happening? Or are they simply saying, well, I'm sad or I'm happy? Eight is kind of the threshold in my experience. And in the one the one time I was involved as a children's lawyer where it actually went to trial, I was actually counsel for a brother and sister. I think the ages were about nine and 11. The brother was a bit younger, sister was a bit older. And basically the process was I met with them at my office. So one of the parents brought them in. Uh, The mom in that instance had primary day-to-day care of the kids. So she brought the kids in. I actually brought them into a boardroom. Uh, We all three of us sat down. I made sure everyone was comfortable. And then I asked mom if she would be comfortable leaving so that I could meet alone with the children. And obviously I needed to do that. And of course she was. And then I met with them both together that first day and just got a sense of kind of who they were, what they liked doing. But I also let them know right away, here's why I'm involved. Here's why I've been appointed. I didn't beat around the bush uh, and I put it in simple language for them. You know, I've been in, I've, I've gotten involved here because your mom and dad can't agree about where you guys should live. They, they each want to change the parenting arrangement. Uh, my job is to understand what your views and preferences are and to relay those to your mom and dad through their lawyers and ultimately to a court if it goes to court and let them know that they're not coming to court. That's another thing we should say very clearly is that just because the children have a lawyer doesn't mean the lawyer will be calling them as a witness at the court appearance itself, which is obviously inappropriate. That will not happen. The lawyer will simply make statements to the court if it does go to a contested hearing. And perhaps uh, another person other than the children would testify on the children's behalf, like a sports coach or a, a doctor or something on narrow issues that might involve those topics. But um, basically, yeah, that first meeting, I just met with those kids. Um, and then, and then as meetings went along, I, I, I would follow up about monthly. They would come in until the, the, the trial. And what we would do is I would meet with them individually. And sometimes there was differences in what they both individually thought or sought, but they were mostly aligned. And then ultimately it got to the point where I was able to write a letter to both the lawyers for mom and dad and let those lawyers know what I was hearing from the children individually. I basically reported on what I had done to date and invited both the lawyers for mom and dad to come and meet with me individually, ask any questions they might ask, uh, any follow-up respecting that letter that I had written. And then um, after that, the matter was set for a trial and I ultimately went to trial and I was just there 
as a participant in the trial, I was able to cross-examine all of the witnesses that were there at the trial, and I was able to make submissions to the judge at the outset of the trial, as well as enter that letter that I had written to mom and dad through their lawyers um, as an exhibit at trial, and then make a closing argument about you know my client's position overall uh, respecting the matter. And uh, the court considered all of that in terms of the broad array of factors in the court in that, in that instance went through Alberta's best interest factors. I, I don't know what section that is, 17, I think, or something in the 18 in the Family Law Act in Alberta. The court went went through all those factors. But the judge in that instance specifically noted the evidence that I had provided, um, the argument that I had provided, uh, the letter that I had submitted, and clearly had considered the children's views and preferences as part of making his decision uh, in the end. So um, it was basically a third lawyer in the room. And uh, that that was kind of it in a nutshell. You make a great point there. Number one, and this is totally bears repeating, your children will never be in the courtroom. They will never be called as witnesses. Most judges find it inappropriate if people bring children to court and will specifically stop or pause proceedings and say, your children can't be here, either find someone to sit with them outside or they just need to be removed altogether. So that's thing one, and that's really important to know. The second piece that you note that is so important, I think, to all of this, as you say rightly, um, when children's counsel are initially retained, I think both parents may have the misconception that children's counsel is going to come in there, much like a judge, and make a determination on where the children should be or what should happen, and that will be the fact that gets the most weight at the end of the day. That's not what children's counsel is doing. And again, it is but one factor that a judge must weigh in making a parenting decision, including historical parenting time, what happened previously, what the parties are doing going forward, and the best interests of the children broadly. That's a great overview. Thank you, Darren. Yeah, and I mean, that's uh, children's counsel in a nutshell. It's they're adding a voice for your children as their advocate. And um, there's often one parent that is uh, happy with what that lawyer is saying in terms of confirming their understanding of what the children actually wanted. And there's another parent that's probably saying, that's not what I expected. I don't like that that's what they've said. Um, but it is what it is. And um, it's uncommon, I would suggest, for um, an argument to be made in those sort of cases that the lawyer has done anything improper. I think it's important for the lawyer to be transparent about when they're meeting with the children, write to the lawyers acting for both parents frequently about their involvement with the children, what the children are saying to them as the matter evolves. And one important distinction about the voice of the children when they have a lawyer versus other ways to get their voice. And the other ways might be, for instance, having an expert report completed, written report by a psychologist or a counselor or some other qualified individual, is that the lawyer is able to provide updates throughout the course of the file versus a one-time static uh, report that's being completed by the individual counselor or psychologist. So it's a little more flexible in that regard versus the one-time report. Um, so there's some benefits in that regard, but uh, there are some downfalls as well. And one of them is you're basically adding another person that needs to be in the room to sign off on any agreement, to participate in the trial, to sort of be present throughout that process. And it can actually, in some instances, stymie uh, resolution where there might be um, 
a clear indication that that's where the matter should go. And that's not always the case, but it just adds another layer of complexity. And maybe, Rob, you want to talk about that a little bit. Yeah, as you say, it's another party in the room, and it's your children having their own interests at the table. So unfortunately, even though mom and dad, you've gone through the process, you've gone through court numerous times, maybe you're able to have that heart to heart and both of you say to each other, okay, let's be done. This is the deal we want. You run the risk then of taking that deal forward and children's counsel may be saying, no, that's not in the best interest of these children. Mom and dad, I don't care what deal you want. I'm seeing something different. And then children's counsel uh, to use a colloquial expression, could very well be driving the bus uh, and pushing your file in a very different direction. Uh, I haven't seen that too many times. Uh, I know Darren hasn't either, um, no. but the possibility for that to happen is always live. Uh, and we do have situations where there are more active children's counsel. And of course, the natural reaction from any parent in that situation may be, well, I have a deal. I have a deal with my ex. We don't like children's counsel anymore. We want them to go away. Well, once they're there, uh, undoing or unringing that bell uh, is near impossible. And that interest is likely to continue to be represented throughout your entire matter. And you'll have to come agreement come to agreement with children's council as well. So it's another chef in the kitchen. Be wary for that. Let's talk a little bit about for those jurisdictions that are um, more readily appointing children's council, be it Alberta, Ontario, uh, unlike jurisdictions like BC, where it's not very common for those folks that are listening, thinking, well, maybe it might be good to get a children's uh, lawyer involved. Let's talk a little bit about the costs. And you and I were both retained on legal aid certificates, so there was no major out-of-pocket cost for any party involved. Uh, the Legal Aid Society, the taxpayers funded our representation for the children in those cases, but that's not always the case. And there is, of course, case law. Uh, we should let the listeners know there's case law that says, you know, the parties can privately retain a lawyer. Uh, in order to do that, to summarize that case law very briefly, one parent can't unilaterally go out and hire a lawyer and then inform the other parent through their lawyer. Surprise! Uh, we went and got, you know, so-and-so as the lawyer for little Jimmy. Uh, he's going to be showing up at the next court appearance. I paid for that lawyer's retainer. Just just, just a heads up. You know, we don't do that. That's That's very much frowned upon. But the option is available to privately retain a lawyer. Um, and so obviously that adds another layer of complexity. But the option exists as well in, in many instances for legal aid to cover that. So, uh, Rob, what's been your experience in that regard? Well, it should be noted in Alberta, almost universally, anytime I've seen it, courts will order legal aid to fund that upfront retainer or those upfront legal fees. But it always leaves open either both parties will share that expense uh, or there may be open to argument in the future that one party may need to bear more of that expense than the other for a whole host of reasons. So even though legal aid is involved and even though the taxpayers' government do pay for that service up front, uh, legal aid will likely look to both parents for some, if not all, uh, reimbursement on that. Uh, so it's not a free service. It's not just the court saying, yep, we'll pay for it. Here you go. So parties do need to be wary of that. Even if legal aid is funding it, and it sounds like a great deal. You may have that expense down the road. Um, similarly, with a private lawyer, 
if you both agree on a private lawyer, although I've never been involved in a situation where uh, private children's counsel has been engaged, I don't think you have either. Have you, Darren? I've seen it. I, one of the firms I was at in Alberta, one of the lawyers there was was privately retained, and I believe that lawyer's retainer payment and ongoing legal fees were covered equally by the parties, but you can sort of come up with any arrangement you'd want in that case. Um, you, you could yeah. agree, for instance, that you know one, one party bears the upfront cost with argument on redistribution of that cost at a later date, like you've alluded to, that could be redistributed by court order if you wanted to have that argument for a whole host of reasons, one of which being maybe uh, one of the parents has influenced the kids to think a certain way or has teetered towards alienating the kids. That That's a whole separate beast. We won't get into that today. But there's been some misconduct committed by one of the parents in influencing the children. Um, maybe it would be unfair in that instance for one the party that hasn't committed the misconduct to still bear 50% of the costs. Uh, they might say the other side should bear more of it because they're the ones that caused the um, children to, you know, not be happy, be sad, and all that sort of stuff. And and that other parent should be on the hook for paying more of the bill because we maybe didn't need them if they hadn't committed that misconduct. Well, you raise a great point there too, because as children's counsel, uh, if one of the reasons to say, well, maybe there's alienation, we as lawyers, even though we are children's counsel, we're not experts. We are not trained, nor are we hired to determine whether there's alienation. So if there's been a specific question to say, is there parental alienation? Uh, is there some other psychological piece going on here, either with the parents or the children? That may actually involve children's counsel saying, we need a further expert involved, not yeah. just a lawyer for your kids, but that's going to trigger a psychologist uh, or potentially some other expert to get involved that will then either add further costs to your matter. And as you can see, that quickly snowballs from, again, not to say children's counsel is involved, is a bad thing, but earlier on before the appointment of children's counsel, if both parties could sort of negotiate an agreement, move through those divorced and done steps and say, what can I kind of deal with? Even though it isn't exactly what I wanted, will this get me done in my family forward? Children's Council can be a Pandora's box that leads down a slippery slope of other things that not only inflates your cost, but the time that you're in court. There are a number of resources that if you're more curious about this topic, you can look into, I think in Calgary, there's something called CLERC, C-L-E-R-C, Children's Legal Education Center, I believe is, is, is the acronym. There's a Children's Advocacy Center in Vancouver. There's probably plenty of other resources that you can find online. Look at one of those advocacy centers and see if they provide any information that maybe you're able to look into to find more information about this topic. But um, yeah, uh, Children's Council, it's a thing, it exists, um, it allows the children to have a voice, but it's not determinative. And again, as you say, Rob, if you're able to move through our divorced and done steps without involving a children's lawyer, all the better and all the power to you. Well, that does it for us on this Friday rolling into Thanksgiving. I hope everybody has an excellent Thanksgiving here in Canada. As always, any questions, lawyers talking about divorce at gmail.com. Find us online at divorcedanddone.com. We will not be with you on Tuesday, but of course, we will see you next Friday. We look forward to joining you.